to a brand new season of Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth. Not only is this our 12th series, but the audio that you're listening to right now is our 100th episode. I'm John Worsey, and in the coming weeks, Robin Montague and I will continue to explore how research at the university is changing our world today and in the future with episodes in the coming weeks exploring crime scene investigation, batteries, parenting self-help books, chat GPT, and much more. But we thought we'd put together a very special launch edition for this series. In June 2023, we invited chief presenter at the BBC News Channel, Mariam Mashiri, to host a roundtable discussion at London's Royal Institute of British Architects to explore why our plastic waste in the global north often ends up in low-income countries, in principle, to be recycled, and the efforts that retailers are making to reduce plastics on the shelves to help create a more sustainable future. We'd like you to be part of the discussion too, and we'll be sharing a new email address for you to get involved at the end of this episode. Recycling is almost second nature to us these days as we sort out our paper and cardboard from our bottles and plastics. But what journey does our plastic waste take? And more importantly, where does it end up? In this episode, we discover how the plastic we throw out often makes its way to poorer countries, with that waste being dumped or even burned. The campaign group Greenpeace has accused the UK government of sending well over half of the household plastic packaging it claims to be recycling abroad. Earlier this year, a new report estimated 218 million of the world's poorest people are at risk of more severe and frequent flooding caused by plastic waste blocking drainage systems. Well, the UK has even more questions to answer when it comes to tackling ocean pollution. Whilst there are rules banning shipments for unsorted plastics from the EU to non-OECD countries, the UK still allows exports. So what's being done here to prevent plastic packaging crossing the border? What efforts are retailers and supermarkets making to ensure less of it ends up on our shelves? And what plans have the government put in place to stop the trafficking of plastic waste. I'm joined by some guests to talk through all this. Ezrat Karim is director and founder of the Amal Foundation. Kenny Umeasibo is responsible sourcing director at Tesco. Dr. Cressida Boya is deputy lead for the University of Portsmouth's Revolution Plastics Initiative. And Dr. Marcus Gover is the director of the No Plastic Waste Initiative, Mindaroo Foundation. Welcome to you all. In many ways, we have to ask the question, why is it or how is it, if you like, that this waste ends up in these low-income countries? Cressida, what is the reason why it gets from Western nations to the global south so quickly and easily, of course, causing so much damage? The basic problem is that we are producing and throwing away too much waste and our in-country recycling systems cannot cope with the amount of waste that is being generated. So to hit our recycling targets, we export a lot of waste overseas. 
Unfortunately, we quite often export it to countries who are even in even worse situations than we are when it comes to waste management infrastructure. So if we can't recycle it, they definitely can't recycle it. The issue is compounded by the fact that whilst countries are supposed to only export clean and recyclable plastics and they're supposed to export them to a licensed recycling facility we actually end up exporting quite a lot of contaminated low value and non-recyclable plastics so once they reach their destination countries there is absolutely no option other than to just dump the imported plastics onto the land they're not landfills they're land dumps really and you end up with these great mountains of plastics which are often of very very poor quality and very low value the plastics are quite often burned as a way of dealing with their volume and that causes a significant air pollution and consequently ill health in those countries. Marcus, it seems very strange, doesn't it, that countries that themselves have these recycling targets then send the plastic to countries that actually aren't capable of recycling them at all. Why? Yeah, I think when we look at recycling, recycling is about manufacturing, really. We're recycling materials to make new things. So it's all about markets. And if materials have got good markets, then they'll get recycled. Those markets aren't just in the UK, they're global. So there is always going to be some movement of materials. But at the same time, I think in the UK, we could do an awful lot better. Before working for the Mindrio Foundation, I worked for RAP, which started the UK Plastics Pact. And that's been sort of tracking and encouraging more and more recycling. But it does show that the actual growth of UK recycling capacity has been quite good. It's actually increased by 50% in the last five years. And I think... The latest data show that for the first time, the amount recycled in the UK has exceeded that recycled by exporting it. That's a really good thing, but really we need to do much more. That has a target of getting to 70% plastic recycling in the UK. We're currently around 50%. That means around another half a million tonnes of recycling capacity needed to achieve that. It would be really nice to see that in the UK and not abroad. That would be more jobs for us here and it would be better, a better environmental outcome too. From my work at the Minjaroo Foundation, I've looked at it globally. And on a global basis, only 2% of all the single-use plastic used in the world is recycled. Everything else is virgin, fossil fuel-derived polymer. So we have a long, long way to go. I mean, I thought we were doing quite well when I looked at the UK and Europe, but on a global basis, there is just so far to go. 2% just does not seem like a lot, does it, Cressida? Yes, it is unbelievably low, and it is inexcusably low really um i think um one of the issues with these kind of soft plastics is as marcus mentioned they have no value so you know the waste reclaimers who do so much of global recycling 60 percent of global recycling in poorer countries and low-income countries they don't collect that waste because their living is pitiful enough already they're certainly not going to spend time picking up plastic that has absolutely no value. Ezra you obviously have worked extensively in Bangladesh you see this kind of waste arriving in the country does Bangladesh get money for taking western waste? Interestingly if it's a plastic container a bottle people like uh, low income people they would be really interested because it has some value they can sell it and they could get some money but if it's a single-use plastic it's not going anywhere it doesn't have any financial value so it's being ended up in the landfills even in the tourist spots everywhere and it's like mount everest of single-use plastics 
all over Bangladesh. What impact does that have, Ezrat, on people's lives, people who live there? It has intense amount of impact in terms of uh, their health, in terms of the communities they're living in. People who actually are aware of this, they know like how it's affecting us. Mostly those single-use plastics are, are being dumped in the dumping ground and then they actually put fire in it. And uh, recently we actually had a report and we found out that there's a huge layer of over Bangladesh and obviously there is a relation to this situation so definitely it's affecting us like anything. Kenny I want to bring you in here I mean obviously you work for Tesco what is it that Tesco is doing to counter this because of course big companies like Tesco produce plastic products they produce plastic packaging is there an argument to say now that it's time for companies like Tesco to change or is there already a movement within the company to try and change this? There is already a movement afoot and not just Tesco, the food industry overall, the suppliers who supply the food, our peers in the retail industry and so on. The challenge with plastic, with packaging overall is that in order to get food from where it's made in the world, so the country where it's going to be consumed or the city where it's going to, con to be consumed and ultimately to the customer's home, you need to have it in something that protects it to reduce food waste, to reduce lots of that energy that's gone into producing that food, not ending up in people's, at people's tables. And plastic has proven to be a very resilient material. It's that resilience that's the reason we're discussing it today because after it served its purpose, it ends up in an environment that it doesn't break down for hundreds of years. The challenge that we face as an industry is how do we deliver that good that it offers without the negative that comes with it? So we've set out at Tesco what we call our four hour strategy. And the first, the starting point of that and in that order is to remove all plastic that serves no purpose, to remove as much as we can. To date, we've removed about two billion pieces of plastic packaging whether it's a, a lid, an additional lid on a, on a yogurt bottle or a, a sleeve in a Christmas card. I've noticed that additional lid on a yogurt bottle not being there anymore. Correct. So we've gone through, we do an audit each time and ask ourselves, where do we have plastic that serves no purpose? And we've taken all of that out. And that's the first of our four hours to remove where we can. The other is to reduce where we can't remove. So if we really need plastic in this case, how do we make sure that we're not putting more than we need? So that's the second of our four hours. The other one is to reuse more because when we get a model where we have to put the product in packaging, how can we use a model of, of packaging that we don't make it single use, that we can get it back, wash it and reuse it? And we tried for two years a big project with Loop, an innovative organization looking at waste management on how we can offer reuse options to our customers. And we've written a report of our learnings, the things that worked, the things that didn't work, how we need all of society to help us to achieve this. And then recycle is the last of all of these because we recognize it has a role to play, but it's not the starting point because many campaigners and experts tell us all the time, we can't recycle our way out of the plastic problem. That's why we have the four hours to remove, to re reduce, reuse more and to recycle. I was reading recently actually about recycling and how difficult it really is because to recycle properly you need to make sure there's no food you need to make sure that all the recycling that you put in the recycling bag is is properly clean and washed and I, I guess in a way 
as you said, that's the end point, isn't it? That's the more difficult end, which a company like yourself can't control. Correct. And for that, of course, there is the, you know, when we talk, people talk about recycling at home, no one recycles at home. They mean they put it in the recycle bin and then a journey starts of how the collection happens, the collection infrastructure, whether it's starting from home, from the office or on the road. That's in the UK. We've been calling for quite a while, encouraging the government to accelerate the journey to create the infrastructure of this collection. Because if you live in the UK, for instance, what you can recycle, what you can put in recycling in Lambeth is different from what you can put in recycling in Westminster. It's different from Scotland. It's different from Wales. If you're a company as we are serving the whole of the UK, we can't create different materials to go into different cities and boroughs. And so part of what we need is for government to help us as industry to create a consistent infrastructure for collecting this material. And then let's walk through, of course, the difficulty of the technical of getting the recycling done, but the collection has to be fixed as well so that we can get to solving this problem. I see you nodding there, Marcus. Oh, yes. I mean, much of my previous life was about trying to increase recycling and consistency so that people aren't confused and have, can recycle the same things, can do it easily, is really, really important. There are so many different systems. Just in London, pretty much every borough is doing a different approach, so it's really quite confusing. It's not as bad, though, as difficult. You don't need to present a spotless bottle to the bin. It needs a quick rinse, and in it goes, and that will be fine. There's a lot more processing comes to get it to that very sort of high-quality end, food-grade, recycled plastic. So people shouldn't be put off from recycling because they think it's too much trouble, but a quick rinse and into the system should be fine. It has huge potential. I mean, the other thing we didn't really talk about much was just the carbon in all of that plastic. I sort of said that only 2% globally of plastic was recycled. The rest of it's coming straight from fossil fuel. That means the single-use plastic has a, a greenhouse gas footprint the same as that of the UK on a global basis, so 450 million tonnes, and recycling is tackling that. Do you think people know that? Do you think people are aware of that? And if they aren't, is that a big problem? I think that's part of the trouble, they're not aware, and perhaps if I just say 450 million tonnes, perhaps that doesn't mean enough to anybody. We need to get people to sort of say, yeah, actually, that's really important, that makes a difference. Presidents, you're nodding there. Yeah, well, actually, I just wanted to mention a couple of other issues around recycling itself, actually. So... The evidence is kind of building now that recycling is itself or can be a bit of a toxic process. Why? So, for instance, if you've got a plastic that contains some toxic additives or has had in it something toxic, like there are flame retardants or, you know, it might have had petrol in whatever it's had in it, those um, toxic chemicals can get kind of released into the recycling process and then they get remixed into the new recycled bottles. So there's quite a lot of unknowns around that. A second emerging area of research is the fact that uh, it seems to be that many, many microplastics are being released during the recycling process, both into the air and into the water that's used for washing the plastics when they're going through the process. And I suspect that in the next five years or so, we're going to find out that recycling has been a major cause of environmental microplastics. And then finally, (laughs) recycling can be used as something of a greenwashing. You know, companies can, we've all seen it, you know, this bottle contains 25% recycled plastic and it could potentially be used... Like recycled toilet paper, for example. Yeah, it could potentially be used as a reason to keep manufacturing plastic. You know, we, we need more recycled plastic using direct fossil fuel derived virgin plastic 
it's bad on all counts really you know it's huge amounts of carbon not the right thing to do we really do need more recycled plastic at the same time we need much less plastic as well and that's perhaps the thing i mean kenny talked about you know reducing removing those are the very first things we've got to do and you're right when you mentioned some of the toxic chemicals there are quite a lot of toxic additives used to make plastic which are plasticizers of flexibility and uv stability and fire retardants quite a lot of those are very toxic Mindaru carries out research looking at the impact of that and there are around about 13,000 different additives used to make different plastics we don't know enough about them but we definitely know that about 2,500 of them are toxic and we know some of the problems that they that it causes and it particularly affects children and young people so we do need more action to remove some of those toxic chemicals which not only when you recycle they come out but when you're using them will come out so some of those chemicals will leach out of a plastic bottle out of a plastic something that we're using so we, we definitely need to take more action there too but i wouldn't i wouldn't dismiss recycling as much as that we do need more of it but Are it's not enough recycling or <laughs> no not totally dismissing recycling but i think we have to look at other approaches i think we have to have a bit of a shift in our thinking you've probably heard that expression turning down the tap so we need to turn down the tap of production you know at the same time um, can i mention that you know plastic is an incredible material medical applications and food security and all the rest of it so you know how can we explore ways of maintaining those valuable materials in the system for as long as possible until they have finally reached their end of life in which case we will have to have a safe and clean recycling system that will be able to cope with those plastics in an efficient and non toxic way yeah and, and that's for instance in our case was the reason we wanted to also trial reusable plastics you know we started online with loop even through lockdown people can place an order in uh, durable returnable plastics or uh, not just plastic but aluminium steel all kinds of containers but durable so that they can withstand the travel back and forth the multiple cleanings and they can go around the system minimum of 10 times as much as 20 times so that all the footprint that goes into making it is eliminated and then you start getting the benefits but how do you also make sure that customers don't forget you don't want a situation where you move away from plastic carrier bags move into bags for life which people are meant to have one for life but they forget it an average household has more than 10 bags for life at home you don't want them those durable containers to be like that and therefore we introduced together with loop a deposit that would remind you to return the plastic to get the container to get your money back is that working so we've published our learnings from the report there are aspects of it that works there are learnings out of it so if someone for instance is buying what you might perceive as a low-cost product like a tin of flour and the flour in itself, I use, I make random examples, is one pound, but the deposit you have to put to get the container is two pounds. Mm. It puts people off. And Chrisida talked about a shift in mindset. Also, we found that a lot of people would say, well, I don't need to buy reusable because I recycle at home. It's not really clear in their mind that reuse is a better model than recycle. And so what you have is that for the customer, the motivation to make the minor 
change that might be needed in lifestyle to be able to make reuse commercially viable is not yet there. But we think we can get there. So part of what we've shared in our report, which is open source and it's online, is the changes that we think civil society can make with us to raise this awareness, this education, but also the role that government can play to incentivize the earlier adopters of such models. We think that there's a place for refill in store, but everything we've looked at tells us that to get to scale, we need pre-fill, the one that's filled in a location separate from the store shop floor. Why? Because of health and safety considerations, right. potential risk of contamination, and scale. If the scale of change that we need is to happen, the shop environment is not going to be enough to have massive volumes of all the products that need to be refilled for that transaction to be happening by on trained people, members of the public doing that in store. It just limits its scalability. Whilst that has its place, especially as a demonstration, as, especially as a cultural signal of where we need to shift, we are still looking for that model of pre-fill such as Lube that can go to scale. Here are some LifeSolve podcast recommendations. Life's too short to fully examine it, but here are some podcasts to help you make some progress. The Partially Examined Life Philosophy podcast is a deep-dive philosophy reading group that's been downloaded nearly 50 million times. Based on its success, host Mark Linzenmeyer started the Nakedly Examined Music podcast, featuring career-spanning interviews with songwriters. You get to hear some great songs and learn about the creative decisions behind them. But maybe you're not that geeky about music or philosophy. Well, try Mark's Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, where diverse panels of guests examine what we watch or otherwise consume. Finally, for the philosophy beginner who's not adverse to some comedy thrown into the mix, try Philosophy versus Improv. Mark and Chicago improv comedy instructor Bill Arnett teach each other their respective arts and bring on professional philosophers and or performers to keep things lively. Find out about all of Mark's podcasts at partiallyexaminedlife.com or look up the Partially Examined Life, Nakedly Examined Music, Pretty Much Pop and Philosophy versus Improv wherever you listen. If you're enjoying Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, then you might like one of our other episodes. From space, fabrics, films, environment, human biology, philosophy and much more, there is an episode for you. Why not try the last episode of our previous season, where we unpacked the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee's proposed international agreement on plastic pollution and shared some insights into the work being done by the University of Portsmouth's Global Plastics Policy Centre. There's this critical evidence and knowledge gap that exists about plastics in general, but more specifically plastics policy and what's working on the ground. So there's huge disconnect between what we're seeing and the policies that are being implemented and the outcomes that these policies are having. All the episodes from our first 11 series are available to stream for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm quite keen to find out, Kenne, if there are any other countries or businesses that you look at for best practice, or is Tesco very much trying to lead the way? In the UK, we're the only company that trialed the Loop reusable packaging, but Loop have also done it in France and with some supermarkets in the US, and we looked to learn from them. 
I don't think any one country has all of this nailed, otherwise we'll all be emulating them. But there are bits of good practice in different parts of the world. In the conversation around the deposit return scheme, for example, lots of examples were given of what's happening in Norway and Germany and countries such as those where they have a higher level of collection and recycling of plastic containers than we had in the UK without a deposit return scheme. So we borrow the best examples from different countries. We're also paying attention to countries in Europe, for instance, in France, where a law has been passed to remove plastic in fresh produce. And there's a lot to learn from all of these sources. Something very interesting I would like to share. People actually reuse plastic containers, plastic bottles a lot. Like whenever they're getting an ice cream tub, they will be putting their food in it. They'll uh, even put uh, their jewelries, things like that. And also, they, after using the shampoo, they will use the shampoo bottle to put like cooking oils and things like that. Given, Ezra, that countries like Bangladesh often bear the brunt of this mm -hmm. plastic pollution, what is it that you're doing, that you're seeing being done in, in Bangladesh to try and educate people, I guess, is one way of putting it, about the dangers of plastic uh -huh. and the dangers of using plastic mm -hmm. and plastic being discarded mm -hmm. in the way that very often it mm -hmm. is. Obviously, through my organization, Amal Foundation, we have been educating people from different social class, a different background from the slum to the upper class. The interesting part is still we don't have the system of sorting our waste, like waste management sorting from home or from offices and there are waste collectors, informal waste collectors, they decide how to reuse it or whether to dispose it. So obviously there's a lot of health hazards regarding that. We as an uh, Amal Foundation, we do a lot of uh, street theatres, awareness to engage communities, mostly youths. We are actually seeing a great source of entrepreneurship regarding this reuse and recycling of plastic. And in Bangladesh, it's still unutilized. We are trying to build businesses, sustainable businesses around it. For example, Bangladesh is very well known for its ready-made garment industry. And a lot of recycled plastic yarns has been used to make athletic t-shirts and things like that. So people collecting these plastic bottles, those are actually going to factories and that is turning into yarns, which is being used by the garment factories. Marcus, I want to talk briefly about turning plastic into clothing. Is that a sustainable approach or is that just pushing the problem further down the line because ultimately you're not going to wear your pair of recycled plastic jogging pants forever? When, when you look at all the plastic, the biggest use of it is the single-use part, sort of 40% of it is used for packaging. Probably one of the next big parts is clothing and around 60% of all clothing is plastic polyester, which is the same as PET that the drinks bottle is made of. It has lots of benefits. Recycled polyester is reducing the carbon footprint considerably, but it is one of the big sources of microplastics, fibres from polyester fibres, along with tyres and then single-use plastic, which is ending up probably as litter. So there is a challenge there. That's probably around designing it better so that it doesn't shed the fibres, but also just perhaps considering whether that is the best thing to do with it is that the best material to use to make clothes and perhaps looking to alternatives which are not made from fossil fuels and won't sort of stay in the environment if they end up in the wrong place at the moment we don't have many alternatives at all to plastic that are, are not 
derived from fossil fuels. It's a great material, but it has challenges. Surely there is science on the way to, to bring us alternatives or not. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research and development to develop bioplastics and, you know, plastics that are derived from seaweeds, for instance, mm. or um, crop residues or, you know, lots of different initiatives around that. I just think it's still a matter of being really careful about recognising mm. that we cannot continue in this take-make-waste mindset because we can swap out one problem for another. You know, we can swap out paper for plastic. I mean, the plastic bag was actually invented by a chemist who wanted to save the trees from being cut down because too much cardboard and paper was being produced for packaging. I have no idea. <laughs> like, so you, that, you just can't those... win. Can you win? I mean, what do we do? Do, do we just try and eat food that's close by us so we don't have to import it? Do we not wear clothes with polyester and just, just wear natural fibres? What's the answer? In Bangladesh, there's a scientist. He actually invented biodegradable plastic bags and those bags were made out of jute. It's doing well, though it's very expensive, so it's not uh, that popular yet, but at least we have something where we can start with. Is that a good thing, biodegradable plastic? Well, we've got to be very careful. See, every time I say something really positive, <laughs> well, no, like, no, we've no, got to be we very be, careful no, we, because it's just going to completely get in the system and ruin the water. And it doesn't I just mean, feel like there's no answer. No, it doesn't mean we can't do it. We, right. we, we need to look for the solution, but the spec for this new wonder material has got to be a material that has the same, will give the performance that plastic gives to protect products and protect food and keep vapours out and water out. But then it's also got to be, if it ends up in the ocean, it's got to degrade properly. It needs to have a, an end-of-life solution for it. If it's a single-use product, you need to be able to, what will you do with it when you finish with it? If it's going to be composted, you've got to have a composting infrastructure. So there's lots to work out. We need to do it properly. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So certainly in Mindrio, I we intend to fund some research into this to try to find this material, which could work at scale. It's also got to be from a sustainable feedstock. Uh, if it's going to replace a lot of plastic, millions, tens of millions of tonnes, you've got to be able to get enough of it and it mustn't cause another problem the way we get enough of it. Let's talk about the role of reusing and refilling. Is there a place for reusable and refilling? Can it, do you think, make a difference in this battle against plastic pollution? Oh, undoubtedly. We've talked about it doesn't just have to be plastics that's used for refill and reuse systems. We can use aluminium, we can use paper and card. You know, think of those Amazon deliveries. So, did it cost companies like Amazon more to give you a massive box for a tiny bottle of shampoo? I, I don't know what their business model is, but one of the things we often say is that you know, we encourage government that when they put plans in place, whether it's for the deposit return scheme or the extended producer responsibility or any other tax or levy that's needed to make sure that uh, packaging we use is priced with no externalities and can fund mm. the closed loop systems that we want to see. We want to make sure that those who have bricks and mortar stores, as well as those who operate solely online, mm. are playing their part. I mean, it's not that unfamiliar, is, is it? You know, we need to create some consumer confidence, maybe access some of the population memory that some of us have from milk bottles, for instance. A reuse system, there's, there's a kind of difference between you reuse and refill, which is quite subtle and it's quite difficult to get your head around in the, in the first instance, actually. And a reuse system involves the containers, as you mentioned, being returned to a hub, where they're washed, sorted and redistributed for pre-fill and put back on the supermarket shelves. And the containers kind of remain the property of 
for instance, Tesco's, as opposed to refill, which is where we might use our plastic bottles for a, a, a different purpose. You might take a bottle to a refill store and get your yeah. shampoo or your... Yeah, or your lentils or, you know, whatever it is. But again, the point is to keep the material, to value the material um, and keep it in the system for as long as possible. There is what we call the break-even point in reuse systems where the environmental cost has to be measured against the single-use item, which will be cheaper and involve less material in the, to produce. So the reuse, let's say, milk carton has to go through the system 10 times, let's say, before it is the environmental equivalent of the single-use. And once you've once you've exceeded that 10 times, then you're winning the game, as it were. Is there an appetite, do you think, amongst governments to bring about this change? We've heard, obviously, from Kenny about businesses and about responsibility, corporate responsibility. What about governmental responsibility? Ezrat, what's the Bangladeshi government doing at the moment in terms of its fight against pollution? We are the first country which actually forbid the use of plastic polythene bags. But a long way to go and there's a lot of corruption, politics, lot of interest of the people like like people sitting on the top, they have a lot of interest regarding the manipulating the system regarding the plastic waste management businesses. Kenny, I know you're probably gonna say to me, <laughs> it's not corporate responsibility, it's government responsibility. And you know, I'm sure there is an argument to say that there is a balance here to be had. You mentioned government before. Do you think that companies like Tesco are being stymied by government not, you know, putting their finger out on certain issues? So actually, we've always said that we have a role to play. We recognize that role as industry, retailers, food processors, manufacturers of packaging materials. We all have a role to play. Society overall, civil society has a role to play partly in, as it's doing, raising public awareness, educating the public and raising the passion for this agenda. Individual citizens have a role to play. And then, of course, yes, government has a role to play. We know that no matter how big an individual company is, it's not going to be able to achieve the shifts we need, the shifts in culture, the shifts in economics, the shifts in infrastructure that we've talked about. We can give case studies of what we know worked. And that's what we tried to do in our loop report to say, this bit worked well, this bit didn't quite work. Here's where we need help. We've done it for many years in our advocacy and campaigning on a consistent recycling infrastructure, including our input into policies, whether it's EPR or DRS. That's the contribution we can make. In addition to what we're doing on our own scale to create inspiration, we've rolled out soft plastic recycling or collection points in all our stores so that all those problem plastics that we can't actually uh, recycle through the curbside collection, bring it to our stores and we'll recycle it. Next conversation that we're having is how do we make sure we have the infrastructure to deal with this here in the UK and not look for countries to say, so we can play all of these roles, but we also need a committed government. We welcome their commitment to creating a consistent collection uh, system. We want them to accelerate that. We want to accelerate all of these things and create the incentives to make reuse actually a viable option that works economically. And I also agree with the points that Marcus has made that in the end, there is a role to play on the economics to make all of these things work. And we welcome the idea of a global treaty because each government is also in competition with others, so they don't lose market to them. 
doing it together at a global level is one way to take that up and we're we're supporting wherever we can well can i thank you for that and uh, i think it's about time to wrap things up it's been really interesting to talk to all of you i think i i think and i hope that we've answered many of the questions that i posed at the beginning of this podcast particularly about the problem of plastic waste why it ends up in global south countries poorer countries and what we can do both on a personal a corporate and a governmental level to make a difference to what's happening Thank you to Dr. Marcus Gova, Director of the No Plastic Waste Initiative at the Mindaroo Foundation. Dr. Cressida Boyer, who is the Deputy Lead for the University of Portsmouth's Revolution Plastics Initiative. Kene Umea Siebu, who is the Responsible Sourcing Director at Tesco. And, of course, Ezra Karim, who is Director and Founder of the Amal Foundation. Thank you to all of you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you, Thank you so much. Our thanks to Mariam Mashiri for hosting this special 100th anniversary edition of Life Solved. What are your thoughts and what are your questions? As you've heard, the problems of plastic pollution don't just get solved with a recycling program. Reduced plastic use, refilling, reuse and advancing technology all play their part. And while shipping our used plastics to low-income countries can be a little out of sight, out of mind, we hope we've highlighted some of the challenges in this episode alongside a number of the solutions. We'd like you to be a part of the discussion. Email us lifesolved at port.ac.uk. That's lifesolved, one word, at port.ac.uk. Tell us what you think and make suggestions for future episodes of Life Solved. In the meantime, you can get news of the latest developments here at the university by going to our website, port.ac.uk. And whether you're a first-time listener or you've been with us for all of our 100 episodes to date, please click follow on your podcast app so you never miss an edition. We'd really appreciate it if you left a rating or review as well. It helps us get these conversations into more ears around the globe. Next time, chemsex. It's a challenging topic and one that's unfamiliar to many. So we'll be exploring this practice of using drugs combined with sexual activity and demystifying some of the stigma and issues surrounding it. Bye for now. <laughs>